Welcome to the You Love and You Learn podcast, the place to learn about all things love, relationships, relationship anxiety, and to deconstruct the one-size-fits-all narrative of what it means to be in a happy relationship. I'm your host, Sarah Yudkin, a relationship anxiety coach who's on a mission to discuss the nuances of love and relationships that I wish someone would have shared with me years ago. My goal with each episode is for you to leave with an expanded definition of love and relationships and with practices to carry with you in your life and relationships on a day-to-day basis. I'm so grateful to have you here. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Excited to be here with you as always for another episode, and this one is going to be juicy, or I hope it's going to be juicy. It's a highly requested topic, a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but at the same time, I will be very transparent that I've also been putting this episode off for a little bit because there is just so much to cover on this subject and I know that I won't possibly be able to cover all of it and we're talking about sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. And talking about not only sex but also how anxiety in a relationship can impact sex and the anxiety that can be caused if sex isn't maybe looking how we think it should, all of that. And stick around till the end of the episode because I do have an exciting announcement. So be sure to stick around till the end. I want to give just a little note at the start of this episode that I do also plan to invite other experts to talk about sex and intimacy. That is definitely something that I would love to do. And that is because it's something that I myself am still exploring. I do not feel like the expert on this topic in any way. Even with this whole podcast, really, anything that I'm sharing is stuff that I've learned, stuff that I've experienced, stuff that I've been mentored on. And also, I'm still learning about love and relationships. That's the whole name. You love and you learn, right? So just knowing that I am not necessarily an expert on sex and even the experts on sex, I'm sure, are still human and still have stuff that they're exploring. And so... If you have someone that you've loved learning from when it comes to topics like sex and intimacy, I would love to hear your recommendations. So please send me a DM on Instagram, send someone's information with me if you've loved learning from them. I will be mentioning some people that I've really loved learning from about sex and intimacy in this episode. But if you have any other suggestions, please go ahead and send them my way. The intention of this episode is to do a few things. I want to normalize just various experiences, various thoughts that I've had or that a lot of clients have brought to me or that I hear in my community. I want to help you feel less alone. I want to share information, of course, because I do think information is lacking when it comes to sex and intimacy. I mean, there's no shortage of information, but some of it isn't as helpful, I would say. Uh, I want to try and make sex and intimacy less shame-based because I know that it can still be such a taboo topic. And hopefully by the end of this episode, I will help inspire you to shift gears from sex causing so much pressure and so much anxiety of like it has to be exactly this way to something that is a little bit more exploratory and that you can approach from a little bit more of a curious place. So those are my intentions for this episode. And my belief is that 
sex is already an uncomfortable topic for many people because I don't know about you, but I didn't necessarily grow up in a house where we were talking about sex and not necessarily that that's good or bad. It just wasn't something that we did. And it was kind of that hush hush type subject or, you know, not really knowing how to talk about it. It's like that awkward birds and the bees thing. Like, when do you do it? And I've never been a parent. So I'm sure if I was a parent, I would have my own discomfort around talking about it. So I get it. There's no judgment. It's just what happened. And if you were in a house that discussed sex, maybe it felt uncomfortable or cringy or I don't know what your experience was, but maybe taking some time even just to think as I'm sharing, like what did I hear in my household growing up around sex? Was it this big secret or maybe was it talked about, but then people judged it or it was something that was looked at as bad, you shouldn't do it. There's also so many different messages, of course, that vary from culture to culture, different religions. And of course, every family just has their own little nuances. And so we are all working from a slightly different baseline when it comes to what we heard about sex and intimacy growing up. So it's already kind of an uncomfortable topic, but then also there's this lack of information around sex and we feel like maybe we shouldn't be talking about it with our parents, but then should we really be talking about it with our friends? Like, are they the experts on it? sex ed class at our school probably wasn't very extensive. We probably didn't have that many people that we felt could guide us or help us in this category, or at least I know I didn't, and I kind of talked about it more so with friends. I didn't have any older siblings, and I didn't necessarily want to go to talk about it with my parents. I still feel like with me and my parents, that's kind of a subject that we do not really bring up very often. So because it's an uncomfortable subject and then there's lack of information, we then turn to what we know best, which is, okay, let me compare to what other people are doing around me. So we start comparing to our peers and what they are doing or not doing sexually, or maybe we compare to the movies and we see the steamy 30 to 90 second sex scenes. It's like a montage where everything is magical, and both partners are very pleased and there's no awkwardness and the people having sex almost just find each other perfectly and they seem to kind of like finish at the same time and everything is just peachy and dandy. So that's one version. Then there is porn. And I think there's a lot of stigma around porn, but it has massively affected our sex culture. Like that is, I think, one of the biggest things that has affected how people think sex should look like. And the expectations of it, even if they're unrealistic expectations, have kind of become part of the operating system. It's like this performance, sex as a performance. So whether it's the movies or porn or we're hearing stories from friends, it can be really hard to separate what is true or not true around sex or what is the experience that we actually are trying to create for ourselves. Because when we're watching, let's say, a Stevie rom-com scene, we're going to have an emotional response to that movie. It was created to create an emotion out of us. And when it's a very big visual cue of the movie and then we have an emotional response, whatever that is, to watching the scene, it's going to create this kind of belief system in our mind because beliefs are formed from emotion and repetition. So the more that we are seeing 
a sex scene, let's say you watch The Notebook many times or you watch a similar type of movie a lot, it's going to create a belief system that is deeply ingrained in us that says this is how it's supposed to look. So that is important to know because the more we're exposed to ideas around what sex should look like, the harder it might be for us to kind of parse out what is our actual goal of sex and intimacy. As if this is not enough already as kind of the information swirling around about sex, I think for any normal person, it can be, this is really tough. And I don't even like the word normal that I just used there. For any human, period, there's no such thing as normal. For any human out there, it can be confusing. There's just a lot to it. There's a lot to the puzzle around sex. And then if you layer in someone who is more likely to experience relationship anxiety or relationship OCD, then it can become a whole other experience when we're talking about sex. Because then you add in this layer of analyzing, monitoring, checking, making sure it's good enough, comparison, assessing the situation. So all of this adds a lot of pressure for sex. Let me just kind of say that a couple times. There's a lot of pressure and expectation when it comes to sex. And as I said earlier, it can be kind of this hush-hush topic. So because it's a hush-hush topic, we're not really talking very openly about these experiences. And so we kind of assume that everything is just the way it is for everyone else, but we're not really talking maybe with people as much about like what our experiences with sex actually are. And so then how are we supposed to actually learn what's going on with other people's situations if we're not really talking about it and it becomes this hush-hush topic and maybe we still don't even really feel comfortable talking about it in depth with our partner. I've found that ironically, the more emotionally connected we can become to somebody, it can feel even more awkward or uncomfortable to communicate around sex and intimacy because of how much vulnerability there is there. There is a risk of being embarrassed. You have more to lose in theory when it's someone that you're super close with. Whereas I've heard stories from people who are saying things like, well, I was able to just have way hotter sex with a one night stand or in a past relationship with my ex, the sex was amazing, but then when you kind of go a little bit deeper beneath the surface, you also find out that maybe the closeness in that relationship wasn't as there and the sex was kind of this amazing thing, but it never felt like something you had to talk about emotionally or dive deeper into. So what I think can be really challenging in something Esther Perel talks about that I'll get into later is navigating this pendulum between being really close and connected to somebody, but then also keeping some mystery and distance and space. And so that I think is one of the biggest challenges of long-term relationships is balancing those two separate things. So more to come on that later. But it makes sense to me when you think about it that with a stranger, for some people at least, not with everybody, but for some people, a stranger or someone that they're not as emotionally connected to might give you a permission slip to be more carefree during sex and not think about it as much, not to put as much pressure on things. And there's a little bit less of a risk associated with the situation, less to lose. So at a subconscious level, 
if we are not as vulnerable, like if we're not as open because we haven't been as emotionally connected to this person, or if we don't know them very well at all, then there is less vulnerability than when you are in a healthy, committed relationship. It makes a lot of sense. And if one or more people are not as committed to the relationship, then there might feel, again, like less of a risk. So I just wanted to acknowledge that piece. It's kind of off topic, but if you've ever compared having sex in a less committed situation or a less healthy situation to a more healthy relationship, it makes sense why there might be less pressure in those situations for sex and intimacy. Whereas when we are with a partner or in a relationship where we really want things to work, that already is adding on pressure. That's a big reason why relationship anxiety can happen in the first place is because there's suddenly this extra pressure of things to work. Like, ooh, what if this actually is the person that things work with? So with sex, that could look like, well, this has to be amazing sex because it's someone who I might have sex with for the rest of my life. Or I can't embarrass myself in front of this person because then I have to talk about it with them tomorrow morning or I have to be around them next week, whatever it is. So today in this episode, I want to go over specifically when it comes to relationship anxiety or anxiety around sex, how I see it all tied together. So how relationship anxiety can affect sex and then how sex can affect experiencing relationship anxiety. So I'll start there. I then want to get into some information that I wish I knew about sex earlier. So I'm going to share research and some information from experts who I love to learn from around sex and intimacy. And then at the end of the episode, I'm going to share some practices to implement if you find that sex causes anxiety for you or anxiety affects your sex life. So some different practices or reframes or different ways of just thinking about sex that might feel helpful if right now it's something that does come up and bring anxiety about. So let's talk about relationship anxiety with sex or sex affecting relationship anxiety. They're kind of interconnected, so I'll just get right into it and talk about the ways that I see it showing up. So a big one is worrying about frequency. So do we have sex enough or other people having more sex than we are? And I share this list from personal experience, but also from hearing about the experiences of so many clients and community members. So just knowing that you're not alone in any of this. The second thing is worrying about how good it was or not. So was the sex passionate enough? Was it boring? Were we connected enough? Kind of assessing the situation after it happened to to measure it against some expectation. Comparing what you have seen or heard about from other people. So is my sex life good enough compared to my friends or their their sex life sounds steamier than mine does? My sex life doesn't match up with the movies that I have seen and feeling like your sex life is not good enough. Another one, I, I kind of mentioned this piece earlier with the movies and the media, but comparing a specific sex scene or something like that and feeling like that is what the mark has to be. Another thing I mentioned earlier was your past partners, if you've had any past sexual partners, or feeling like, oh, I don't have any sexual partners to compare to, so how do I know if this is good or not? So whether you've had a lot of past sexual partners or only a couple or no past sexual partners, like was sex better with my ex or would sex be better with someone else and kind of assessing things, feeling like there's this uncertainty of what it would be like with other people. 
And then are we sexually compatible? So this could be related to sex drive, like how often you want to be intimate and how often your partner does, or the way that you're having sex in the moment. Like, are we meshing well together? Does my partner get me or know what I need sexually? So these are all ways that I have seen anxiety kind of pop up. Another pillar of relationship anxiety when it comes to sex is the meaning that we are assigning to sex. So not only might we have anxious thoughts about sex, but we also assign meaning to these thoughts or we have beliefs that we're assigning around what sex can mean. So Let me give some examples of what I'm talking about here. So if we don't want to have sex, for example, then we might add the meaning on top of that of it must be because I don't want to be with this person or if I was more attracted to them, then I would want to have sex right now. So there's not only like an anxious thought like, well, I don't want to have sex right now, but then it's like, well, what does that mean? So another example of this would be if we're not enjoying sex as much as we think we should be let's say maybe in the moment, and we kind of are like in our head, maybe the meaning we would assign to that is I would enjoy myself more if I was with a different person or the right person. So these are the ways that we are adding meaning on top of a sex. So if we're not fully present while having sex, then it could be, well, I would be more present if I actually cared about this person or I should be more present right now. Why can't I be more present? And kind of just like it creates that feedback loop in that cycle. And again, all of these are things that I've experienced. So please know that you're not alone. But just as you're listening to those examples, you might even have noticed that all of these meanings that are getting assigned to sex or the experiences around sex are likely leading to feelings of shame. So I'm doing something wrong or bad, or are we doing something wrong or bad? They might lead to some guilt of I shouldn't feel this way, or my partner doesn't seem to feel this way, so why am I feeling this way? It can also lead to feelings of helplessness, like I can't control this, I can't fix the situation, am I ever going to be able to enjoy this? And maybe even disappointment too. Like I thought sex would be something different than it is. And so the beliefs or the meaning that we are assigning to certain pillars of sex, if you will, or certain experiences in sex can have an effect on how we feel about it. So that's why I wanted to do this episode so that as you're listening, you can kind of take an assessment of what you believe around sex and intimacy. I'll get to that more later, but It's really important that we check in on what we believe around sex and what our expectations are around sex and ask, like, are these beliefs or expectations helping me to have an experience that is enjoyable or is it causing me a lot of pressure? And then the trickle down effect of these beliefs is making me feel shame, guilt, helpless and disappointed. And we do have an ability to shift the beliefs that we have around sex and intimacy so they induce less shame and feel much more loving and compassionate. Another thing that affects sex and relationship anxiety and can just come up is these perfectionist expectations of thinking, I could always be doing sex better or this could always be better than it is right now. 
And this one is tough. I will just share again, all this is vulnerable regardless, but I will just be so open and share that I can still fall prey to this. So thinking, well, maybe it should be more exciting or maybe we should do this or that differently. And as counterintuitive as this sounds, the act of always thinking that sex could be better or that you could be enjoying it more with someone else is one of the biggest factors of what can cause us lack of enjoyment in the moment. So if we're constantly assessing it and analyzing it and feeling like, is this good enough or it should be better, then we are focusing on what is not working and what's missing instead of what is working and what we can build upon. So this has been a practice for me because two things are true. Sex can definitely evolve and grow over time. And yes, it could, in theory, continue to get better and better. So that is true. And I think that practicing and growing and being more open to trying new things, like that is a beautiful thing in a relationship. So I don't think that you should never try to grow in the area of sex and intimacy. That's not what I'm saying. However, if we are always coming from a lack mindset or a scarcity mindset around sex and intimacy, like we're not doing it enough or this is bad or we need to fix it or my partner's not doing this well enough, I'm not good enough, it's going to feel like we are behind and catching up. And no matter how good things end up getting, you'll probably still always feel like they could be, quote, better. So this applies to so many things, not just sex, right? Let's say you're trying to get more money, but you're coming from a belief that I never have enough money. And even once your basic needs are met, you, you feel like I still need more money and I need this and I need that. At what point are you going to feel safe, right? And I think that this is a hard one because yes, with our basic hierarchy of human needs, there is a certain amount of money or safety that we want to have as a baseline. But if at our core, we always feel like there's never enough, never enough, never enough, that's what you hear stories of people who have enough money or they have enough fame or they have enough whatever, like they've moved up the the ladder enough at work, but they're still trying to get that more and more and more and more and more and it never feels like enough. And so I think with sex and intimacy, that's what can happen too, is that we can constantly be trying to improve, 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 whether it's in our relationship with our partner sexually or whether it's just like our relationship could always be more emotionally connected. There's so many things that we can keep trying to improve, improve, improve. And eventually it also can help to be like, okay, can I just take a little break on trying to improve and appreciate what we do have and what is working? So that's something that I am constantly practicing because The grass is greener mentality is not necessarily something that would go away with a different partner or in a different relationship. If we're always thinking the grass would be greener somewhere else, which is kind of part of being human, I'll just say, I think a lot of people experience grass is greener mentality. It's like when you're single, you really want to be in a relationship. When you're in a relationship, you're like, what would it be like if I was single? Or at least some of these these thoughts can cross our mind. It doesn't mean we have to act on them, but... When you're in a nine to five job, you might daydream, what would it be like to have my own business? And when you're having your own business, I can speak from experience. You're like, oh man, it might be nice to have a structure of someone telling me what to do every now and again. So there's always an opportunity for the grass to be greener on the other side. And there's always an opportunity for you to water the grass that you have. And so 
it's okay if sometimes you do have the thoughts that are popping up like, well, would it be better with someone else? Or how do I know if our sex is good enough? It's okay, of course, to have these thoughts. But when we constantly entertain them and and think like that's what we have to do, like we have to go find that better sexual partner or we have to constantly be fixing, 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 improving, we can just start noticing if that's becoming an addiction almost to like improving things in our life and our relationship instead of practicing acknowledging that things are also good in certain places too. Last thing here that I see as far as sex and intimacy when it comes to relationship anxiety is this anticipatory anxiety. So let's say that last time you had sex, maybe it wasn't as present or connected as you wanted. And so then you're kind of worried like, oh my gosh, well, what if that happens again? And then you start almost avoiding getting into that same situation. So you're kind of like, well, I don't even want to have sex. It wasn't the greatest last time. And you kind of start almost resisting anything that could bring about the anxiety again. And what this is doing is unintentionally we're reinforcing the resistance by saying, well, I can't handle it if I did have anxiety again. And so I'm just going to try to avoid that situation. And instead of then becoming more resilient and more able to sit in discomfort or becoming more connected to our partner because we're having to be vulnerable, we're avoiding that. And so anticipatory anxiety is tough because by even having the anxiety pop up, it's almost bringing us back into that anxious state of, well, this might happen again. And it can become, if we're not mindful, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's just important when we notice like what if thoughts coming up of what if this happens again, what if this happens again, that is a future-based thought. It's not happening right now. And if we do want to become more present and more connected when we're having sex, it's not going to come from thinking about it in an anxious way. It's going to come from getting more grounded and connected to ourselves. So I'll get more into that here in the next section when we talk about things I wish I knew about sex earlier. But anticipatory anxiety is a common pattern that I've experienced and also seen with my clients and community members too. All right. Now we're going to get into the meat of the episode. This episode may be a little bit longer, but it's because there's a lot of information that I think is so important to cover. And even then I'm still just scratching the surface, but there are some things that I wish I knew earlier about sex. And I do think that sometimes knowledge is power. It's just about knowing more information sometimes and then actually practicing or implementing that information in our life. So the first thing I wish I knew about sex earlier was that it is vulnerable and vulnerability is intimidating and scary. Vulnerability is putting ourselves in a situation where there isn't certainty. We don't know the outcome. We're risking kind of like putting our heart out on our sleeve especially with sex too, like your body gets involved. Like we all have our own body image stuff. Even if you're very, very confident in your body, I'm sure everyone listening can relate to having some sort of body stuff where they're like just thinking about how their body looks or the odors, the whatever, the textures, all of that. So just knowing that sex in general is vulnerable and that anxiety is understandable, like to give ourselves compassion with that, because I think that it makes sense. It's like, this is obvious. I'm stating the obvious here, but 
sometimes I don't think we give ourselves enough credit that just the act of sex at all can be vulnerable and awkward and uncomfortable because it's something that we've seen in the movies as just being so natural and easy and go with the flow. So on the surface, it's understandable when we're like, oh, I'm worried about sex. Does that mean something's wrong? It's understandable to have these types of thoughts. And it's understandable if you take this in a very literal sense to worry, oh, I shouldn't be having any anxious thoughts. And so that must mean it's because of the person I'm with. But if you go a little bit below the surface and you just think about how risky and vulnerable sex can be and everything that you're putting out there, it makes sense that you would probably feel this way in many different situations. I'm assuming that this is, by the way, safe relationships, healthy relationships, but it's not necessarily, again, not not in every relationship, but if you're in a healthy, loving relationship with someone who respects you, then being in a different healthy, loving relationship with someone who respects you is not necessarily going to be the thing that makes sex less awkward or vulnerable. That's just the experience of sex and intimacy. So that's the first thing I just want to start off with and to give yourself a lot of compassion and giving myself even, I have to practice this too, compassion because of the discomfort that can just come up in general around sex. Another thing I wish I knew earlier about sex is that frequency doesn't have to be the goal. So I think a a common question is like, well, how often is everyone else having sex? That is one of the top questions that I hear sex experts are asked. Um, I've listened to a lot of them talk about this before. And two people that I really love that speak about sex and intimacy are Vanessa and Xander Marin. So Vanessa is a sex therapist and then her husband Xander, he kind of brands himself as like the normal dude, the normal husband that is just adding his perspective. But they have been sharing about sex and intimacy for a long time on their Instagram pages. And I was listening to a podcast they did with Living with Landon. I forget how I even came across this episode, but They were sharing on that podcast that when they pulled their Instagram community, and I think at the time it was like over 300,000 people and they got a ton of responses, there was a lot of split responses between the frequency of how much people were having sex. So there were people having it weekly, monthly, and even less than that. And the interesting thing they found was that the frequency did not affect the level of contentment in the relationship. So how often you were having sex did not correlate with the level of contentment in the relationship. There were people who were very content with all different frequencies of sex. So whether you're having it weekly or monthly or less than monthly, there are still people who are very content. And that shows that frequency is not necessarily the thing that's making it more enjoyable or not. I think that quality over quantity is something to consider. But that doesn't mean that every time you have sex needs to be quality. It's just knowing that quantity is not necessarily the only metric, but every relationship is different. And I thought it was just really cool to see that across hundreds of thousands of people who were getting pulled, that there's so much of a split of frequency when we really think that, you know, you hear these numbers like two to three times a week, which I don't necessarily think is the only amount that is a healthy way to have sex by any means. I've heard a lot of people that are sex experts talking about 
how less than that by significant amounts is still shown to have positive outcomes for couples as long as the people in the relationship are happy with the frequency and finding a way that works for them. So that's a really important thing. And when you can take frequency off the table, it's been really helpful, at least for me, to not necessarily be monitoring all the time how often are we doing it because then I find that it's coming from more of an analytical scarcity mindset versus connecting and being intimate when we want to connect and be intimate. Okay, the next thing I wanted to share is I think that it's so important to understand how our system works, like how our body is working. And one of my favorite books that kind of helped break this down is the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. And she has this concept that was originally, I think, developed by two men named Eric Jensen and John Bancroft. It's called the dual control model of sexual response. But the way that Emily Nagoski has talked about it is using words that I think are a little bit more playful and cheeky. And she talks about the accelerators in our system versus the brakes. And so our central nervous system, which is made up of the brain and the spinal cord, has a series of partnerships of accelerators and brakes, things that accelerate arousal or turn on the brakes. And the more formal name for these are the sexual excitation system. So this is what's looking for sexually relevant stimuli, things that are in your five senses, what you hear, smell, taste, touch, or imagine. And it sends the signal turn on to the brain and genitals. So this is what is more exciting, what's arousing you more. These are the accelerators. And the sexual inhibition system is scanning the environment, what you hear, smell, taste, touch, or imagine for stimuli to signal the turn off. So it's interesting to think about it this way because arousal happens in different processes. It's activating the accelerators, so looking for things that signal your body to turn on, but it's also deactivating the brakes. And arousal, which I think that we think that all human bodies work the same. And in Come As You Are, she talks about how, yes, our human bodies are made up of similar parts. And so there's a lot of things about our body where you're not alone and other people experience the same things. And we're also unique because we each have different sensitivities for our accelerators and brakes. So that's worth noting because if you're comparing yourself to a sibling or a best friend, it's not necessarily going to be apples to apples because we all have different sensitivities for our accelerators and brakes. So at a base level, accelerators are moving you kind of more towards arousal and brakes are taking you farther away. And so Emily has found in research that sensitive brakes can be a predictor of sexual challenges. So there was a survey of 226 women in 2008 of all ages that had low interest in sex and arousal. And they had what was called an arousal contingency, which basically meant that unless things were going just right, it was difficult for them to be sexually aroused. Or if they were worried that it was taking them too long to become aroused, it affected their arousal. So if we have sensitive breaks, and I'll talk about what 
pumps the brakes here in a bit, then it can mean that we need to give ourselves extra compassion because if we are needing to pump the brakes more and putting pressure on things, it's going to have the opposite effect. And here were the factors in that study that can affect arousal. These are in focus groups with women primarily that all these factors were found and I can relate to a lot of these things. So our feelings about our body, this can affect arousal. So if we have low feelings about our body, for example, that might result in us pumping the brakes and feeling less confident. And especially if we have sensitive brakes, feelings about our body that are negative could be something that's a huge factor in our ability to be present or connected during sex and intimacy. Worrying about pregnancy can be another one. So whether or not you have contraception or not, whatever it is, like if you're cycle syncing, however you are monitoring pregnancy, if you want to have a kid or not, that can be something that is coming up when you're being intimate. And I think that it can just be a very subconscious thing. Like if you do have contraception, it can still be subconscious of like, I hope it's working or whatever it is. So that can be a factor that can affect arousal. Feeling desired by a partner versus feeling like your partner wants to have sex just to have sex on their terms. And so this can be an interesting nuance that I think can come up differently for different people in relationships. So it's like, do you feel like the way that sex is initiated is helping you be aroused or does it just feel like another thing that you're checking off a box? And sometimes Esther Perel calls like in long-term relationships, she kind of uses this phrase maintenance sex. And sometimes sex is going to just be maintenance sex where we're doing it to do it. But other times it can be, of course, more exciting if you feel like you are initiating it in a way that shows that you are desired or desirable. So that is a factor, feeling accepted by your partner. And that can be, again, there's levels to this, but these can affect our arousal, how sex is initiated, which I just mentioned, and then negative mood or stress. So this would be an example of something that can really pump the brakes if you are in a negative mood or have stress or are feeling anxious. Or on the flip side, if you're feeling more grounded or connected, that can be an accelerator. So that was something I really needed to learn and understand about sex, how the system works, those accelerators and the brakes, because it's not something that I had necessarily thought about, even though it is in some ways kind of intuitive, like, oh, it makes sense that there are certain things that might inhibit my arousal versus things that might make my arousal more easy. And it was important for me to know that not everybody has the same accelerators and brakes. And so not to compare myself to other people, which leads to my next point that was a huge game changer for me. This might be one of the most important things I ever learned about sex and intimacy is that desire does not work the same for everybody and that's normal. So in the book, Come As You Are, Emily talks about two different types of desire types. One is more spontaneous and one is responsive. And so in the book, she says the standard narrative of sexual desire is that it just appears. You're sitting at lunch or walking down the street and you see a sexy person or think a sexy thought and pow, you're saying to yourself, I would like some sex. This is how it works primarily for maybe two thirds of men and up to a third of women. But some people find that they begin to want sex only after sexy things are already happening and they are normal. That is the more responsive type of desire. So 
the standard narrative is spontaneous. You just always are thinking about it and you can just turn it on super quick. But responsive desire is when you are kind of already doing something that has some sort of sexual connotation. So you're cuddling or you're kissing or you're initiating sex. And then once you're kind of already into it, you're responding and your desire is turning on. But maybe when you thought about it earlier in the day, it wasn't that exciting to you. And so 20 to 60% of women experience responsive desire. I definitely resonate with experiencing responsive desire. And there's different contexts. Like sometimes you might have a more spontaneous moment of desire, but your baseline is more responsive. And so that's totally normal too. Like what's happening around you can affect how your desire is happening or not happening. But it was so helpful for me to understand responsive desire because there are so many times, I think I heard Glennon Doyle talk about this once on her podcast. She was joking that thinking about sex is not necessarily that exciting. But then if her and Abby, her wife, have sex almost every time after, they'll be like, wow, why don't we do that more often? I'm so glad we did it. That's kind of how I feel when it comes to sex. I've never been this overly sexual person and I don't necessarily need to know why that is. Like sometimes I have wondered why is that, why not? But it could simply just be because everyone's different. Everyone has different things that are accelerators and brakes for them and everyone has different types of desire. And so I really do resonate with the responsive desire and that's helped me create less shame because I'm not constantly waking up every morning and being like, sex, 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 top of mind. And sometimes it's only once Nate initiates or I even have to kind of not force myself at all to initiate, but it's almost like I have to be intentional of like, okay, I know that once I initiate, I'll enjoy this, but I'm not necessarily super excited to do it in the exact moment, but I know that I am craving that connection and I know that I'm going to enjoy this experience. And so whether or not I initiate or Nate initiates, it helps me to remember that I am more naturally geared towards responsive desire than spontaneous. So those are some of the initial things that I really needed to understand about sex and intimacy. There's a few more here that I wanted to share as well. This I think has been really important for me and I'm still practicing this new belief which is that having a long-term relationship with strong sexual connection becomes something that we need to consciously build and we have to consciously keep choosing. So in Emily Nagoski's TED Talk, she has one called How Couples Can Sustain a Strong Sexual Connection for a Lifetime. And she shares that research has shown that two things can help sustain sexual connection, which is a strong friendship at foundation. So if you have a strong friendship with your partner, which kind of means strong trust, like are you there for me? Are you emotionally present? And the second thing is that couples who prioritize sex and decide that it matters. So there are schools of thought, and this is what she's sharing in the TED Talk, that basically If you have a strong friendship, which means strong trust, and you prioritize sex, that this is what sustains a strong sexual connection for a lifetime. So it's not necessarily that there's this huge amount of passion and every day you wake up and you're just so excited to rip each other's clothes off and have sex. It's not this huge amount of sex constantly, like every single moment, and you're having this crazy wild sex. It's more about creating this protected space where you make sex a priority and you carve out time 
and it continues to become a priority because you're nourishing it in the relationship. And that doesn't sound as sexy as maybe the rom-com narrative of sex, but in the TED Talk, what I love is that Emily kind of talks about how that is actually something that can be viewed as sexy when you and your partner are continually making that effort to show up for each other and love each other and make sex a priority because that's what you value and that's what you care. It's the less spontaneous way of looking at it, but it's a much more intentional approach and it's showing you matter to me and this matters to me, so I'm going to keep putting that effort in. So that is really important to understand and it's helped me now that I'm past seven years with Nate. Sex has not always been something that is a top priority at every stage in our relationship and it's helped me remember that as long as we keep coming back and choosing it and make it a part of our relationship, then that can be one of the factors that keeps a strong sexual connection between us over the long haul. And in the video, another important part of this is she talks about how being in a strong relationship with a strong sexual connection doesn't mean that you are in a relationship without any difficult feelings, without irritations, without resentments. It's about having those difficult feelings and still turning back toward the relationship with kindness and compassion and choosing to find your way back to each other. So that was really important for me to hear because I think so often you just think that if you're going to have a strong sexual relationship, it's just either there or it's not there. And I didn't used to look at sex as something to grow and nurture and cultivate. I thought it was just something that you either had or you didn't have. And so naturally, if you started having less of it or it didn't become as top of a priority in my old way of thinking, I thought, oh, well, then that just means that it's not going to be a good sexual relationship versus thinking about how can I take responsibility for this and how can Nate take responsibility and we create the relationship that we want sexually together. The next thing that really has opened up my eyes on love and relationships is Esther Perel's work talking about how desire and closeness live on opposite ends of the pendulum, so to speak. So if you think of a pendulum, it swings back and forth. And on one side of it, there is the closeness and connection that we can feel when we are really emotionally intimate with someone. So we start sharing all these amazing things about each other. They know a lot about us. We're connected. We love each other. It's almost like this comfortable and cozy experience. And we need that in a relationship. She talks about how both of these things are core needs in a relationship, a sense of safety and comfort and stability. But then when you swing to the opposite side of the pendulum, it's a sense of variety, a sense of newness, a sense of novelty, a sense of playfulness and mystery. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And at the beginning of a relationship, there is a lot of mystery. You don't know when you're going to kiss the person first. You're like, ooh, when are we going to have sex for the first time? When are we going to do this? When am I going to see them next? It's a lot of newness, a lot of excitement. But as things become more and more comfortable, which is important if you want to have a long-term relationship, you don't necessarily want to be constantly guessing like, does this person love me? Does this person care about me? At a certain point, there becomes more confidence or closeness or comfort about you and your partner being together. And so eventually, this sense of newness and novelty and mystery 
becomes less and less and less and dwindles. And that's, I think, an inevitable part of being in a relationship. And yet, if we want to have desire and excitement in our relationship, then we have to really intentionally nourish that part of our relationship. And her advice, which is almost counterintuitive to what we think of when we think relationships, is that in order to keep some of that desire and excitement alive, we have to maintain a sense of our separateness. We have to maintain a sense of self. We have to have intentional time away from our partner. And we have to create more mystery and space in between us so that there is space to reconnect. Because if we're always connected, if we do every single thing together, we know exactly what our partner did that day. They know everything about us. We hear them on all of their work calls. They hear us on all of the work calls. It's almost like where is the space to reconnect because we're already doing all of that together. Whereas in the beginning, when you have that space in between you, it makes you feel more drawn in like, ooh, I want to know more. I want to keep learning. I want to know more about this person and understand them. And so that was game changing for me. She talks about this in her book, Mating in Captivity. And when we want to have more of that like fun and playfulness and passion in our relationship, it takes intentionally infusing newness and excitement back into the relationship. That is so important to understand, knowing that it's not just going to be new and exciting forever. We have to intentionally infuse that and we have to intentionally maintain our sense of self and connect to ourselves so that we can then reconnect back into the relationship. So that was a huge piece of her work that really excited me. She also has some really cool ways of thinking about desire and love and connection and sex and intimacy that she talks about in her TED talk. So in her TED talk, she shares that when we have gotten into a new era of thinking about love and relationships and we've taken the more romantic approach to things, there has been a downstream effect and that has in some ways negatively affected our relationships because for the longest time for a long time before the modern era, we were getting married to somebody and experiencing sexuality in terms of duty or economical reasons. So it was like, let's combine our families together and get married. Um, or you had to, if you were, and this is for heterosexual relationships, if you were the woman, you had to have the kids and stay home and run the household, whereas the men had to go work. And so when there was sexuality back in the old days, it was less out of love and more out of duty and I need to be with this person. Now, that doesn't mean that relationships back in the day never ended up being love relationships, but a lot of them came from more of duty or you have to do this. But now we're in this new era where pleasure and connection are the things that are really important to people. So I really want to marry someone for love and pleasure and connection. And the sex needs to be based on us having this beautiful, passionate relationship. But at the end of the day, there's so much that we expect from our partner now. So we expect them to be our sense of safety and dependability and reliability and comfort and like our best friend. But then we expect that adventure and the surprise and all of that infused into one person. And it's the longest that we are 
staying married because our lifespans are getting longer and longer too. And so back in the day, your lifespan, expected life was not as long and sex was more out of, okay, we need to do this, but it wasn't out of love. And now we're expecting love and sex and passion and a best friend and everything all wrapped up in one. And so it's just so much pressure that we're placing on our relationships. And so that was really helpful for me to also see how our sex expectations really have just gotten so high. Whereas maybe back in the day, that didn't used to be something that people were as focused on in such a strong way. And so now in this kind of new era, we want to have everything, but it's a lot of weight that we place on one person to be our everything. So it's just, it's worth considering that. Some other things that Esther said in her TED talk that are really, really helpful are that she has found three common patterns of when people are most drawn to their partner. The answers that are the most common are when a partner is away or when they're apart and there's a chance to reunite. So this is when we are in a place that we can be more imaginative and there's more of an opportunity for longing and missing that person. And so again, let's relate this back to sex and intimacy. If you are always with your partner, always doing the same things, then there's less of that opportunity to have imagination and longing and excitement. And so this is something that is just, again, worth thinking about because all of this is connected and it's worth reflecting on your own life and relationship. Does this affect me? Is there enough mystery or time to reconnect in our relationship? Are we taking enough time apart? The second piece, when someone is most drawn to their partner, when they are in their element. So if your partner has a hobby or they play a sport or they're in a band or they're out and about at a work happy hour and you get to see them engaging with other people, it's like when your partner is doing their own thing and being a separate person and you get to witness it, that was a common way people are drawn to their partner. So thinking of ways that you can infuse that into your relationship too. And then the last one was when there's an element of surprise or doing something new, novelty. So not just necessarily doing something new, but the part of you that comes out when you're doing a new activity and bringing out different versions of you versus the same exact person day in and day out. That's the same person doing the chores. Can you bring this new version of you out, maybe trying a new activity and being more playful and have an element of surprise? So these different ingredients that she talks about of surprise, newness, imagination, curiosity, mystery, novelty. These are the things that she calls ingredients to eroticism. And so just reflecting as you're listening, like, am I bringing these elements into my relationship? Is there any imagination? Is there anything left to the imagination? Or do I need to know every single thing about my partner's day? Is there an element of playfulness that we're still bringing into the relationship? Or am I assessing everything? Am I being new or mysterious or do I feel like we're doing the same exact things every day or doing the exact same sex positions, for example? Maybe there needs to be an element of newness or curiosity and spicing things up. So those are all things that I just find so interesting. A couple more things that Esther has talked about and I've learned from her are that with erotic couples, there are some patterns she found and she uses the word erotic. I don't know how much that word resonates with me necessarily, but I'm working on practicing just being open to whatever that word brings up is that erotic couples have privacy in their own space. So they make sex their own kind of private thing and they're not necessarily 
bringing it to the world outside them. It's like their own unique thing. Erotic couples have foreplay start at the end of the last time you had sex. So it's not just about the 20 minutes of having sex. It's about how you're interacting with each other in between. Are you flirty? Are you supportive of one another? Whatever it is, um, that's an important factor. Erotic space is a space where you leave rules away and you enter a place where you can let go of responsibility and control. So this one's really interesting, especially if you are someone who's more anxious, is are you able to just kind of shut off the part of you that needs something to look exactly a certain way and go a certain way? Or are you able to practice just tuning in to what is happening in the moment in front of you without needing it to look and be exactly what you think it needs to be. With erotic couples, they know that passion waxes and wanes and has ebbs and flows. And they know that and they don't judge it, but they also know how to turn it back on and bring it back. So maybe having a fun date night or going on a mini weekend trip, whatever it is, like they know that it doesn't have to be there every day or every week even, or maybe even every month for some couples, but they're able to have that sense of passion brought back if they want to because they know it's an important piece of the relationship. And erotic couples know that intention has to be part of the equation. It's not just going to all happen spontaneously or that it falls out of the sky, but that you're consciously, intentionally putting that effort and energy into sex. So That is really important. And the last thing I'll share from Esther's TED Talk, I know that I'm putting a lot of information in this episode, but all of it I think is so important, is that her take on kind of accelerators and brakes is she uses these phrases, I shut myself off when dot, 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 or I turn off my desires when dot, dot, dot. She acknowledges that it's not someone else's responsibility to turn you on or off, but checking in when do you shut yourself off and when do you turn your desires off? So examples could be if you feel dead inside, if you don't have time for yourself, if you're feeling low self-esteem, when you don't feel like you have the right or ability to receive pleasure or you think that receiving pleasure is not okay, that you can only give pleasure, for example. This is examples of shutting ourselves off from desire. When you take ownership and responsibility of when you shut yourself off or turn yourself on, that is a superpower versus expecting everything else around you to be perfect or right or good. So The opposite of this is I turn myself on when dot, 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 not what turns me on or who turns me on, but when do you turn yourself on? How do you turn on your desires? And is it about spending more time doing things that kind of wake up your sense of aliveness, like taking a bubble bath and then putting on lotion for 10 minutes and slowing down, cozying up with a steamy book? What are things that you can do to turn yourself on and not relying on who or what turns you on to kind of bring it out within you. So this is her version, I think, of the accelerator breaks concept, but it's taking ownership of noticing that you have responsibility to bring these things out. So that was a lot from Esther, but there's just so much good from it. And what I have found 
and Emily Nagoski talks about this in her book, Come As You Are, is that there's kind of two, two different schools of thought, really. It's the first version that I shared, which is like the way that you have a long lasting connection with somebody sexually over a long time is that you are maintaining a close friendship with them and you are making sex a priority. So that's kind of one school of thought. And that comes from John Gottman's research of 100 couples 45 and older with good sex lives. And he found that comparing good sex lives to poor sex lives was really about being connected in a friendship and making sex a priority. Then there's the Esther Perel school of thought, which is that you have to maintain a sense of separateness and infuse newness and novelty and mystery into the relationship in order to keep the passion alive. And whichever approach resonates more with you, that's great. There's no right or wrong. Emily Nagoski is a twin and she said that she resonates more with John Gottman's approach, which is like closeness and friendship helps create a more loving sexual connection with her and her husband. Whereas her sister, Amelia, is a little bit more relating with Esther Perel's concept of I need space in order to feel sexy and then reconnect with my partner. And maybe it's a mix of the two. Maybe sometimes you feel like more sexy when you're taking that time for yourself and carving that out and you're having newness and mystery. And other times when you feel really close and connected to your partner, that helps create a more sexual experience. Whatever it is, as you were listening to this episode, just kind of reflecting like what feels true for you? What are you learning? What might you want to explore? How could this apply to your own relationship and sexual relationship? Just starting to think about these things. But the key is that both John Gottman, Esther Perel, and Emily Nagoski all agree that passion does not happen automatically in a long-term monogamous relationship, but passion does and can happen as long as people are intentional. So that is, I think, a huge key piece of this puzzle here is knowing that it's not just going to be an automatic thing that's either there or it's not. You have to put the energy in, but it doesn't necessarily have to be energy that you put in from this stressful, anxious place. It can come from a place of more openness and curiosity. So with that said, now I'm going to get to just a handful of ways that you can take what you heard in this episode and potentially choose to show up a little bit more intentionally when it comes to sex and intimacy in your relationship and hopefully reducing some of the pressure that you're putting on yourself. So thing number one to do is checking in with your expectations or sex expectations if you want to call them. Are they coming from what you actually want or what you think you should do? And a great question to figure this out is coming from an episode I did with Dr. Molly Burritts, episode number 37. If you want to go listen to that one, she talks about what a healthy relationship is. And what she found was that a lot of clients were coming to her with things around sex, for example, and they just wanted to know what everyone else was doing. So how often are people having sex? And a great question that she asks her clients to check in is, is this actually something I want or what I think I should be doing is if you found out that everybody else was doing the exact same thing as you, would you feel relieved or would you feel disappointed? So if you found out everyone else was having the exact same amount of sex and the same type of sex, doing it in the same way, would you be like, oh, thank God, Whew, that means I don't have to worry. Like I'm so normal. 
Or would you be like, wait, why aren't we having more sex? Or I still think that I should be doing sex differently. Like I want to be more playful, fun, spontaneous. That initial question can help you understand, am I trying to just keep up with the Joneses and do it right? Or is there something I actually am craving more of? And that answer can change over time. Like maybe at first you just simply want to come to terms with the fact of, okay, I'm having sex every other week and that's okay. Like I'm not going to stress about that. But then maybe eventually it's like, okay, how can I slowly increase the connection that I feel during sex? Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be something that all happens overnight. But when you can take some of the pressure off and just say, hey, okay, Maybe I've been trying to have sex once a week because I think I should be, but I actually don't crave to have sex once a week, and maybe I can just release some of that pressure, and that's okay. So just understanding your expectations and checking in to see, like, do I think some of this has been influenced by a perfectionist expectation from movies or what I'm seeing around me, and giving yourself that permission that despite what the media and the movies have said, it's not going to be this effortless thing and it's not just there or it's not there with someone having the expectation of, all right, it's going to take some time to build and that's okay. So expectations is just so relevant to this. How much you're expecting of the experience of sex can be one of the biggest things I think that helps us feel like it's either good or not good. So the second thing, and I say this knowing that It might still be something that people are like, well, why should I have to do this? (laughs) But lowering the bar and lowering the bar doesn't mean that you're just having this like horrible life and you're never going to have good things because you lowered the bar and you settled. But if you're listening to this, I have a feeling that you're the type of person who's like a high achiever and you want nothing but the best in every single area of your life. And if you're anything like me, that has been something that has caused a lot of stress, not necessarily a lot of contentment and happiness. So lowering the bar and just seeing how it feels to lower the bar and give yourself permission to not have everything be perfect. I'll give a personal example of this. So there was a time recently when it had been, Nate was traveling for work and he got home and it still took us, I don't remember exactly how long, but we didn't have sex right away when he got home. And when I was in the thick of my relationship anxiety, I would have been like, oh my gosh, that's so bad. We needed to have it soon, like right away in order to show that we missed each other, all these things. But it ended up being, I don't know, like a week later. So it had been a little bit for us since we had it. And I could have gone into that experience being like, well, it's been a little bit, so it needs to be amazing. It has to be so good. But I intentionally lowered the bar and I was open to it being more of maintenance sex, like Esther Perel calls it when you're in a long-term relationship and sometimes you do it because you know you want to. When I lowered the bar to having maintenance sex, it ended up actually being more exciting. And I'm not saying that it was 100% the only reason for that, but Instead of going into it being like, it has to look like this or I have to feel like this, I just kind of put the bar towards the bottom and then it ended up being higher than my expectation versus what I always do is I expect the highest, highest, highest thing and then nothing can possibly live up to that. So I end up feeling disappointed. And so when I'm not monitoring how good the sex is or when I'm not checking in like, ooh, did we have sex yet this week or whatever, it's like I'm able to just enjoy it more. And I think that that's what the anxious mind is afraid of, that if we stop 
focusing on something or monitoring something that it's never going to happen or it's never going to improve. But what I've found is it does the opposite effect and actually helps us enjoy or grow more in that category. So that is the first two things, checking in with your expectations and then lowering the bar, especially if you lean more perfectionist. The third thing is learning what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And I I think that there's this like myth or this expectation that like if we're with the right partner, they're just going to understand exactly how our body works and what we like and what turns us on, um, what helps give us more accelerators or what pumps our brakes. But I've found that that is a little bit of a tall order to expect someone else to know our body better than we do. And so taking some time to learn what works and doesn't work and knowing your body and how it operates. So whether that is taking time for self-pleasure or whether it's just about kind of being more present in the moment when you are having sex, like, oh, what does feel pleasurable and what doesn't and just starting to kind of understand and feel like you have the awareness and learning to eventually communicate that is also a great I think practice I know that communicating around sex can feel uncomfortable but when you're doing it from a pure place of like hey I just am observing this and I wanted to share it with you not from a critical place um, but from a place of simply just acknowledging hey like I discovered this thing about my body and I wanted to share it The next two here are managing your breaks and making time to rev up the accelerator, so to speak. So managing your breaks, things like the stress that you have in your day-to-day, how much screen time you have, like what pressure you're putting on yourself for sex or just in your life in general. Low energy can be a break as well. Like if you have no energy, then of course you're probably not going to be heading to bed being like, yay, I'm so excited to have sex right now. And so our energy, the stress that we have, the way that we are operating in our day-to-day life, of course, is going to affect how we're showing up with sex and intimacy. And so I know that we live in a very busy world and I know that there's a lot going on and there's a lot of stimulation. And so just taking time to care for yourself and care for your energy and care for your stress levels daily, I I think is important. Even if it's just as simple as doing like a five-minute breathwork routine to regulate your nervous system before you're trying to be intimate, whatever it is, just trying to, to take some time to carve for yourself and knowing the things that are pumping your brakes and starting to be more aware of those. And then on the flip side, making time for pleasure. So it doesn't even have to be sexual pleasure, but things like doing things that fill up your cup or like getting fresh air or spending time in nature or self-pleasure or doing a bubble bath and putting some candles on, reading your favorite book, like whatever it is, finding the things that are your accelerators and making time for those. Because I don't think that a lot of people are intentionally doing that. And we're just hoping that we have spontaneous desire. But as I've shared, my experience is that I have much more responsive desire. So if I'm not taking time to pump up the accelerators in my life, then it's not going to just spontaneously come that I am interested in sex. It has to be more intentional than that. A couple last things here is considering to reframe your why for having sex, why it's important to you. Because a lot of times I think that we have this expectation of sex is in order to reach a certain outcome, like in order to orgasm, in order to 
do this and do that. Like I, I have to have sex in order to make sure we're having enough sex. It's We have to have sex because it's important to have sex in a relationship. Yes, those things can be great, but if we have like a set outcome for why we're having sex, then it can add more pressure versus I want to have sex as an opportunity to learn more about myself and my partner's connection or I want to have sex as a gift to the relationship right now instead of, oh, we have to both finish in order for this to be good sex or whatever it is. If our why is we have to check a box or we have to have sex once a week, that's going to be a very different energy than, oh, I am more focused on the quality of the sex. So just kind of keeping in mind like the intentions and motivations for sex and can you switch them to feel more helpful to you and more helpful to the greater good of the relationship. Prioritizing sex, that is something that I talked a little bit about in this episode already. It doesn't mean that the amount of sex you prioritize has to be a certain number, but whether it's once a week, once a month, once a quarter, I don't know what it is, but just making sure that you kind of check in with yourself and you check in with your partner around what is a helpful amount for us And can we make it a priority? If it's something that you want to prioritize, then it has to be a priority. And that might mean even when you don't always feel like it. So this is something that you have to decide what you believe for yourself. I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong way to think about it. But there are times where we can have resistance around sex. And the resistance is simply just because it's uncomfortable and I don't feel like it, and I would rather stay in my comfort zone on the couch cozied up than initiating something with my partner, and it could be awkward or uncomfortable. There are times, of course, when your body is saying, no, I'm not interested in sex, and you do not want to push your body into a situation where it feels unsafe or it feels like you don't have a say. That is not what I'm saying here, but there are absolutely going to be times, especially if you're someone who feels very anxious or just someone who overthinks things, puts a lot of pressure on things where you are going to, just like you might go to the gym when you don't feel like it some days, if sex is important to you and you're someone like me who has a very responsive desire, let's say, and is not always the one that is excited or wants to initiate things. If sex is still a priority for you in your relationship, there may be times where you have to lovingly and kindly and gently push past the resistance that says, I don't feel like it or I don't really want to. This, again, I'll say it, it doesn't mean that you should just never say no or that you always have to do it and that you just have to do it every time your partner wants to at all. But if you have an intention for something, following through on it regardless of if this spontaneous urge pops up or not can be a beautiful way to nourish that sexual connection because you're just making it a priority and you're knowing, hey, I'm not going to have a super outcome-driven focus here. I'm just going to try and have a goal to connect more with myself and my partner and it doesn't have to be the best thing ever, but I'm just going to try and we're just going to do it. So that is probably a much different perspective than you're used to and take what works from this and leave the rest. But a quick recap is if you find that you're looking for ways to show up differently when it comes to sex, check in on those expectations, lower the bar, learn what works for you and what doesn't and continue to then communicate that. 
manage your breaks, the things that slow down your arousal, make time for pleasure and things that accelerate your arousal. Consider reframing why you want to have sex and make sure that it's a helpful goal or thing that you're moving towards, like a goal of being more connected or being more curious about your partner or a goal of having quality time, not necessarily like it has to be perfect every time. And notice when you have an invitation to prioritize sex more and lovingly push past resistance that wants to avoid it or avoid doing anything uncomfortable. All right, we did it. We did the first sex podcast on You Love and You Learn. I'm sure there will be more to follow. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of this one. But before I go, I said that I have an announcement and I'm so excited to share more about this. And this has been a long time coming. It's been something that I've been thinking about doing for a while. And I've wanted to create more of a community type space for the You Love and You Learn listeners of the podcast, people that are on my social media page, a little bit more of an intimate way to connect with me and form community, not only with me, but also with other people who are learning about love and relationships. So I have decided to launch a Patreon. And the You Love and You Learn Patreon community will be the space to have others around you who are passionate about building secure and loving relationships with their partners and themselves. And I have a feeling that the reason you're here listening to this episode right now is because you do want to create that secure and loving relationship and not only with other people in your life, but you want to start having that loving, connected relationship with yourself too. And that's the foundation of our relationships with other people. And so you are probably the type of person that would benefit from having like-minded people around you to support you. I know that it has been such a blessing for me to feel less alone in navigating relationship questions or challenges by having other people along for the ride. And so that is why I'm creating this community. And I I really just want to create a space where people feel like they can come and learn and not have to do it all on their own. And so to start off, I'm just going to keep things super simple, just one membership option to join for right now. And it's just $7 a month and you're going to get access to a monthly Q&A meetup and you'll have a chance to submit your questions and, and come on and meet other people who are also navigating love and relationships. There will be weekly posts and community discussion. This will help create connection with other people and get to learn from others and what they're navigating and going through. And I'm going to be popping in there and talking with you guys on community discussions each week. There's going to be exclusive content like behind the scenes into my relationship and life. I don't always share everything on social media. And so I want to create a little bit more of that intimate connection with my community and get to share some behind the scenes type stuff with you. Any future webinar that I do will be part of this membership. And then by joining, you will get instant access to my existing webinar library. So this is all four of my existing webinars. Is it anxiety or intuition? Anxiety or incompatibility? Is it anxiety or am I settling and moving forward after a relationship anxiety spike? So normally this six hours of webinar content would be over $100, but you can join right now and get all of it for the first month even and beyond for $7 a month. So I am so, so, so excited for this. We really have not taught most of us how to be in a loving, healthy relationship. And I think that it's so important that we have to learn about love. And that's why I do what I do. 
And I want to create a space where that's possible in a more intimate way and a space where you can do it alongside other people. And so I'd absolutely love to have you in the community. Doors open today. So click the link in the show notes if you are interested in joining. Feel free to dive right into the content that's already posted in Patreon. And I'm so excited to see how this community grows bit by bit over time. So if you're interested, I'd love to have you. But if not, the podcast, social media, all of it is still going to be here as usual. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to the Love and You Learn podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, it would mean the absolute world to me if you could rate and review the podcast because the more ratings and reviews there are, the more people that can hear this message. And it's really important to me to get this message out to the world and to create a space where people can learn about love and relationships in a way that is not judgmental, in a way that helps them expand their perspective from the cultural narratives that we've heard and seen in the movies and in Hollywood and the media. And the more ratings and reviews that are there, the more people that can hear this message. So thank you again so much. It really means the world to me that you are listening and see you in the next episode.